Please join me in John chapter 14 this week. Just a reminder that we are in what is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse when Jesus is teaching his 11 remaining disciples what is about to befall them and and the Lord. And it's very important stuff that he wants them to get. Therefore, it's very important stuff he wants us to get. It's the longest discourse by Jesus in the Bible. It's from chapters 13 through 17. We saw last week that when Jesus would ascend to the Father, that the Father would in turn send the Comforter or the Holy Ghost, which is God dwelling in us. God will dwell within every believer. And with that, we saw we can have comfort and peace while living this life below. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to have peace. We don't have to wait till then to have comfort. God wants us to have that now, which He died for our salvation, but He also died so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. Now, just in case you're wondering, I intentionally passed over a portion of verse 26 last week where it says that the Holy Ghost shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The reason I have skipped that for now is because when we get to chapter 16 in about five more years, we... (laughs) I'm just kidding. Four more years? I'm just kidding. Uh, When we get to chapter 16, we'll see more teaching on the Holy Ghost. And I just want to combine all that together when we get to that chapter. So we'll cover that later. Let's begin this morning by looking at verses 28 through 31. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, ye would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will talk, hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and have nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father giveth me commandment, even so do, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Before we really get to the main message this morning, I want to take just a moment to address the last phrase of verse 28, which says, For my Father is greater than I. And when I stop and do things like this, I want you to know my heart that I am not in any way whatsoever trying to be offensive to anybody. But that phrase is the proof text the Jehovah Witnesses use to say that Christ was not God. Again, I'm not being offensive, but I need to address these things as your pastor. And they want to convince you that Jesus was not God in the flesh. Jesus says here, for my Father is greater than I. So the argument they make is, if Jesus said that His Father was greater than Him, then how could He also be God in the flesh? On the Jehovah's Witnesses website, jw.org, the question is asked, is Jesus Almighty God? And their answer is this, quote, Jesus never claimed to be on the same level 
as Almighty God. He said, the Father is greater than I am, John 14, 28, end quote. Now, I don't mind the question. It's a good question. It's a fair question. And it's one that I would expect somebody to ask if all we did was look at that passage. It's a question that would probably be asked. And I think that's fine. We need to be willing to answer those questions. But the problem is taking a verse independent of itself away from all that surrounds it and also the context of the entire Bible for that matter. And what I dislike is the intentional wrestling and and twisting of the Word of God to make it say what we want it to say in order to support our doctrine. Now, how do I know that they have taken the Word of God and twisted it? Well, for starters, they made their own translation. And it is called the New World Translation. And it is very clearly written to support their false doctrine. Probably the most noted change that we remark about, and believe me, we could take time to go over many of them. But in John 1.1 in our King James Bible, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 makes it clear that the Word was Christ because it tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But in the JW's Bible, it says in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, And the word was a little g God. Let me just pause right here to take the opportunity to say, don't ever think that the Bible translation issue is a minor issue. It is a major issue. When Satan first showed up in the Bible, we find him trying to get Eve to doubt the word of God. And he did that by questioning the veracity of the Word of God. He's still doing that today. There's no reason for us to have some over 200 English translations today. Things that are different cannot be the same. It is a major issue. Lisa, I don't know why I thought of you when I jotted this down in my notes. But we don't stick with the King James Bible because we think it's cool to be old school. Although it is, amen. I mean, if I was a football player and they were like, you know, Gary Brooks, old school. I guess you have to watch football. But anyway, we don't stick with the old book because we think it's cool to be old school. We stick with the King James Bible because it is the preserved Word of God for English-speaking peoples. I spent 16 weeks going through why we use the King James Bible during a Sunday night series. And if you missed it, you missed it. Good stuff. Back to our text here. The JWs used verse 28 of our text to prove that Jesus wasn't God. We once had a man attending here. Some of you may remember him. And he grew up in the kingdom hall. In fact, he attended the one just south and west of here. uh, Right across 190 there. And he really struggled with this because of this verse. And he would weep over not knowing. And he really, really struggled. And he said, but the Bible says, uh, Jesus said in the Bible that my father is greater than I. And, and it just really hurt him. And 
He couldn't get over this. And the question poised, how can Jesus be God when he says, my father is greater than I? First, as I mentioned earlier, we must understand that we cannot answer the question correctly when we pull this verse out of context, make it stand alone apart from the book of John and apart from the rest of the Bible. Anytime you just yank a verse out, you can build any kind of doctrine you want. I can... I can tell you God has feathers. He will hide me under the shadow of His wings. You can take a verse out and you can build any doctrine you want to build. It's got to be taken in context. I've mentioned before while addressing other false doctrines through our Wednesday night series in Ephesians where we had to talk about the errors of what is called uh, eternal predestination. Some might say eternal selection. That God back there in the beginning of creation had already determined you to go to hell and you to go to heaven and there's nothing you can do about it. There's people that believe and preach that and while I was addressing that because Ephesians chapter 1 demanded that it be addressed, I told you that first of all, when the Bible makes something absolutely clear and we have black and white book chapter verse For example, God said that He is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. When we know that, then we cannot let any teaching cross that line. Because it's it's clearly there. And so we can't let anything come past that. Therefore, any doctrinal position which teaches that some are doomed to hell has to be rejected as error. No matter how difficult... The passage may be to understand at first. Likewise, the Bible is crystal clear that when Jesus was born, His name was to be called Emmanuel. Which being interpreted means God with us. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. The Bible is absolutely clear that God came to this earth in flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, any teaching that goes beyond that has to be rejected as error. Are you with me? So there's no doubt about it, and therefore we have to reject what the JWs are trying to tell you, that Christ was not God in the flesh. And why is that a big deal? Because without that, you don't have biblical salvation. The Bible, in fact, says any who teach that, it's the spirit of Antichrist. Now, that principle that I just gave you, it's simple enough, but it really doesn't answer the question. (laughs) How is it that Jesus could say the Father is greater than I and Jesus still be God in the flesh? Well, understand, he's not speaking of his nature. He is speaking of his condition in his flesh upon this earth. Context is everything. And actually, the verse itself explains itself. He was going back to the Father. Now, which is greater? Being on this earth or being in the presence of God? Which is greater for us? Remaining here in this flesh or dropping this robe of flesh, receiving a glorified body and going back or going into heaven? It'd be far greater to get off of this sin-sick, sin-filled earth and go and be with the Father. To leave this fallen nature behind. 
Philippians 1, verses 21 through 24, the Apostle Paul wrote, For, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to part, and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Why did, he, why did He dwell here in the flesh? It was more needful for us that God would come in the flesh and offer Himself a sacrifice for many. And my point through this, Jesus here, He's speaking of, his, of Himself positionally as He had taken on the form of a servant. He robed, him flesh, he robed Himself in flesh for the purpose of suffering. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 say of Jesus, But He made Himself of no reputation, and took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in, a fashion, being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, He humbled Himself to come to this earth. In order for Jesus to be our perfect sacrifice, and in order for Him to fulfill the law of God, He had to come in the likeness of men so that He could be subject to the laws of God. I hope that makes sense. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He by the grace of God should taste death for every man. In respect to Christ's servitude, the Father was greater than He was. Everybody catching that? Jesus said in John 13.16, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. So there's no contradiction here whatsoever. But Jesus simply came to do the will of the Father. And you may wonder, how is that possible? Well, God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Uh, he, he is everywhere at one time. He's, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. I don't understand that, but that's who He is. You say, how do you know that's true? Well, I've been in churches on the other side of the globe and I know God showed up. But guess what was happening on this side of the globe? There were people having church and God showed up. Don't let any false teaching contradict any scripture which is very clear. The Bible says God dwelt among us. Don't let any group try to tell you otherwise. And can I just encourage you, stay with the old book. Well, that took a bit longer than expected, but let's move on. Jesus says in verse 28, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice. Now, I don't believe this coming again mentioned here is what he had just described about the coming of the Holy Ghost, but that is actually the same kind of reference as in verse 3, where he says, I go away and I'll come again. I believe he's talking about his second coming. We Baptists like to use the phrase, the book, the blood, and the blessed hope. Amen. And our blessed hope is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is returning one day. Aren't you glad about that? Well, if you're saved, you're glad. If you're not saved, you're going to be in fear that day. The Bible says you'll cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon you and hide you from the wrath of the Lamb. 
Notice that Jesus says, if ye loved me, you would rejoice. Jesus wanted them to rejoice because he was going back to the Father. He was going back to the place of glory and honor and majesty. But I want you to get this this morning. They had a misplaced love. It wasn't that they didn't love him. They did. Jesus even acknowledges that at times. But they had a misplaced love. They had the same prejudice as most did in Israel. They were taught in those days that the Messiah would come and he would reestablish the kingdom of Israel and, and raise up somebody to sit upon the throne of David. And they were looking for that at that point. And they didn't quite understand what Jesus had come to do yet. And because they misunderstood his work, their love for him was improperly placed. They, they had a love the love that they displayed, it was a selfish love. Now stay with me. It, it was because it was about what they could get out of Him being with them. Jesus said, I'm going away. And evidently, as we've been going through this chapter, we've seen Him addressing it. If you love me, keep my commandments, verse 15. And now He's saying, here, look, your love for me is not quite where it ought to be because you ought to be rejoicing if I tell you that I'm going to the Father. But because they kind of misunderstood all of this, they're kind of selfish about it, and they didn't want to part with Him because of how it would affect them. Please understand, it's never wrong to mourn the loss of a loved one. But to allow that to affect your view of God's character is terrible. They should have been rejoicing in his soon exaltation, not sorrowing over his departure. Do you realize there's nothing better than going to the Father? That's the blessed hope. There's nothing better than that. Yet how many Christians have been sidelined due to the death of a loved one? And they get mad at God. Why did you let... And the thought is, I deserve better than this. It's a selfish love. It's a misplaced love. People get mad because they wanted someone to stay here longer. And really, they're asking that against God's will. It's selfish and it's prideful because we feel we deserved better than what God gave us. Now, I know this is deep waters for some of you, but it's okay. We feel we deserve better than for God to take a loved one from us. But if the living had a proper love, they would rejoice that their saved loved one was going to the Father. Where there is no more sin, where there is no more pain, where there is no more suffering. There will be times of sadness, there will be times of loneliness, there will be times of sorrow, but that should not control our mindset about who God is. It should not tell us that God does not love us. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant brethren, concerning them which are asleep, or those who have passed away, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Jesus is addressing the disciples' misplaced love for Him. Matthew Henry wrote this, Many that love Christ let their love run out in a wrong channel. They think if they love Him, they must be continually in pain 
because of Him. Whereas those that love Him should dwell at ease, should rejoice in Christ Jesus. And so as I was saying, their, their misplaced love for Christ was a form of them, it was from <clears throat> them misunderstanding the work that He came to do. The work that He came to accomplish. And listen this morning, we get sideways with God when we don't understand how the Lord works in our life. And then we start to say things like this, God doesn't care about me. If God loved me, He wouldn't let this happen. And we ask questions like, does God really love me? Is His word true? Ephesians 5.17 says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We must rest in the fact that God's ways are not our ways. And that His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're, they're higher than ours. And I want to ask you this morning, do you really believe that God is not going to place on you something more than you can handle? Do you believe that? Then why do we get so sideways with God? I was listening to a pastor preach the other day and he gave the testimony of a 19-year-old who was killed in an accident in his church. And the family, of course, they were devastated at the loss of their son and their, their brother. And the young man had checked on his driver's license that he would be an organ donor. And when the doctors went in and they began to harvest his organs, they had to run tests and they discovered that he had already developed a rare form of kidney cancer that had already began to spread throughout his body and the organs were of no use. And the doctors went to the, the family and they said, your son had this rare, rare kidney cancer and in all cases that we see, it typically, I shouldn't say all cases, but it typically is something we don't discover until it's way too late. It's already invaded the body, and in this case, it already had. And by the time we know it's there, it's usually about a two-year process of pain and suffering. And they die. And the family who was uh, absolutely devastated, we can, we can understand that. Now, all of a sudden, upon hearing that news, they began to rejoice that God took their son as fast as he did, as opposed to letting him live two years through a painful cancer that was very likely not going to be treated. You see, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we may not understand the things that God does, but we have to trust His sovereignty. And you may not get that answer with the death of your loved one. You may not know why God has let that happen uh, to them, but you have to trust God. God loves us. We may not know all the reasons why. But please, don't let that lead to a misplaced love for God. God is good. And if the disciples knew what was in store for Jesus, they would have rejoiced that He was going unto the Father. I think we all know that it's often easier said than done. But trust God. Trust God. Look at verse 29, please. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass... Ye might believe. Jesus is taking the time to tell his disciples what shall befall him so that when everything has come to pass, their faith would be strengthened. Because that which would confound the disciples would afterwards be the foundation of their faith. 
How can the Messiah die on the cross? Well, that which confused them was actually going to be what emboldened them once they understood what had happened. Jesus uh, tells them what shall befall him because he wants them to know everything is proceeding exactly to God's plan. Nothing is taking the Lord by surprise. God's sovereign will is going to be executed in all of this. And He wants them to learn that He knows the end from the beginning. And I can tell you that the Lord just wants us to believe in Him. To place our faith and trust in Him. To understand that He doeth all things well. He wants us to trust in His Word. The Bible speaks about things which shall befall the Christian. And those of us in the book won't be surprised when it comes to pass. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 say, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The Bible says your faith will be tried. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Don't think that is strange when these things happen in your life. And I'm, and I'm here to tell you that people struggle. And, and they don't understand why is this happening. God just wants you to believe. Believe in His Word. Learn to trust His Word. Psalm 19, 7 and 8, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You need to live in the book this morning. We need to be a people of the Bible. Amen. Amen. Y'all might as well wake up and get excited. Because it's about to get real in verse 30. Look at that. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do, arise, let us go hence. Please get this. In verse 29, it says, now have I told you, but verse 30 says, hereafter I will not talk much with you. We must learn to listen when the Lord is speaking. Because what is going to get us through the difficult times is what we gleaned during the good times. What we could hear when He was clearly speaking to us is what will help us when the storms of life come. And you better seek Him while He may be found. And call upon Him while He is near. So many wait until disaster strikes to get a word from God, but He wants to prepare us ahead of time. And that requires you to be in the book. And I can tell you that those who strike out are those who didn't get what they needed when the getting was good. And because they were not prepared, they fell by the wayside. Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 say, But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and Anna with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not rooted himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by, he is offended. Satan was coming to attack Jesus like never before 
this night of our text and the next day. But Jesus says, he has nothing in me. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm sinless. Satan has nothing in which he can snare me with. There is nothing in me that Satan can use against me. Satan will not get an advantage over me is what Jesus is saying. Because he had come to accomplish the will of the Father. And nothing was going to derail that because Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Our sinless sacrifice. At the end of of verse 31, I think I I read to you the wrong verse a minute ago. Sorry. Um, I meant to read to you verse 30. Just pretend that I did. Verse 31, I just read it to you. Um, So... But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do, arise, let us go hence. So in other words, Satan's going to come. It's said there in verse 30 that he's going to come, and he has nothing in me. Verse 31 is saying, even though Satan is coming, and even though he has nothing in me, I'm still going to permit this battle to take place against me, so that the world may know that I love the Father, and that I have come to fulfill the Father's commandment. I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, so that you may know that I love the Father. And again, we see that the best demonstration of our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is our obedience to His commandments. The last sentence in this chapter is what really gripped my heart and where I want to close with this focus. Arise, let us go hence. And I hope you are able to grasp The weight of these words. You understand what is happening. Jesus says, arise, let us go hence. What did he just say? He said, Satan's coming. The attack's coming. And here's Jesus knowing what is about to befall him. And he says, arise, let us go hence. Jesus is getting up to go to the cross. And yet he says, arise, let us go hence. And he's going to be betrayed after this. He's going to go to the cross and he's going to die a horrific death. I want to ask you this morning, will you arise and do the will of your Father? Will you arise and go hence? It will mean you taking up your cross and following Him. Because notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, arise, I go forth. Arise, let us go hence. Let us go. You men, you need to follow me. Let us go. Did you know it's easy when things are going well to say, Lord, I'll follow thee whithersoever thou goest. But when there's a cross involved, and we learn that it demands our life, will you say at that point, arise? Let us go hence. Or will you go out of your way to avoid it? Luke chapter 9 verses 22 through 25 say, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? 
Are you willing this morning to identify with Christ's death? Then you have to arise and go forth. In Paris Reedhead's now famous sermon, Ten Shekels in a Shirt, he asks, why should a person be willing to go in identification down to the cross and into the tomb and up again? Because it's the only way that God can get glory out of a human being. Hebrews 13, 13 says, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Are you willing to arise and go forth this morning? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow him? Let's pray.